Good morning. Just want to start off by a few warm questions, just something to think about in your own lives. Have you ever had a time in your life where you had this desire just to not want to stand out? To not want to be noticed, just to blend in with the crowd? Now, I remember when I was a kid, there were times where I was self-conscious. I did just want to blend in with the crowd many times. Maybe there was an occasion where uh, maybe a kid made fun of me for wearing a particular piece of clothing. Well, the next day I might feel a little less inclined to wear that piece of clothing. I didn't want to draw attention to myself. The, de the desire to conform can also affect our thought processes too. Peer pressure might cause a child to be into a particular sport or hobby when previously they would have had no inclination towards it at all. Well, today we're going to look at a church that was tempted to conform to the city around it. We're going to turn to Revelation chapter 2. So we've been going over, starting a couple weeks ago, the Lord sending personal messages to seven churches in Asia. We're on the third church today, the church of Pergamos. I'll just read verses 12 to 17 of chapter 2 in Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and do not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, uh, David pointed out just last week, the Lord introduces himself in different ways to each of the seven churches. And there's a significance to how he introduces himself each time. So, for instance, last week, we, um, David covered the church of Smyrna, which was undergoing some severe persecution. But to the church of Smyrna, the Lord Jesus introduces himself as the one who was dead and came to life. And this will have been a very comforting reminder to the believers who are undergoing persecution, because even though they might be hurt or killed for their faith in the Lord, they knew that they also might, would come back to life. They would be resurrected also, just as the Lord Jesus was. In, um, with Pergamos, the Lord introduced himself as he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now, this is actually not a comforting image. And we see later in Revelation, in Revelation 19, we see that the Lord is described as having a sharp sword out of his mouth with which he will judge 
the nations of the earth. The Lord's coming to this church with a threat of judgment. To understand um, this church a little better, we need to go over a little historical background about Pergamos. Pergamos was a wealthy royal city. It was the capital city of its province, and it was a seat of one of the Roman supreme courts of the time. Now, why is the church of Pergamos referred to as dwelling where Satan's throne is? And again, it's referred to as being a church where Satan dwells. I mean, it sounds like a dangerous place to have a church. And the reason the Lord refers to Pergamos in this way is because it was a center of idolatry. And I looked up in um, Unger's Bible Dictionary, uh, the way they phrase it, um, Pergamos was a city addicted to idolatry. It was everywhere. Now, there was a temple of Athena, there's a temple of Dionysus, there's a temple of Hera, and there was even a huge altar called the Pergamum altar that was um, 116 feet wide in measurement. This is just the altar, not the temple. Now, that's wider than this room we're in right now. There was also a temple in the city dedicated to worship of the Roman emperor. Now, David mentioned this was something that was happening in this time. The, a lot of uh, cities were um, having worship to the Roman emperor. And um, actually, Pergamos was the capital of that worship in Asia. There was even a temple dedicated to worshiping a serpent god. Now, there's some debate over what Satan's throne could refer to specifically. Some people think it refers to the serpent worship that was going on in the city because one of Satan's titles is that serpent of old. Others think that the Pergamum altar, that uh, huge 116-foot wide altar, some people think it resembled a throne. Or some think that the worship of the Roman emperor could also refer to Satan's throne. But whatever the case, um, the city was saturated with idolatry. You could say this church was deep in enemy, ter deep in enemy territory, spiritually speaking. They really were located where Satan dwells and where Satan's throne was. And with all these idols around, this was not an easy place to be a believer in Jesus. Now, what does it mean when it says that the Pergamos believers held fast to my name? Well, the believers of Pergamos, they were not afraid to be associated with the name of Jesus. Jesus was their Lord and Savior, and they were open about it. Now, in the United States, we don't face the level of persecution that um, the believers in Pergamos were facing. <coughs> But we still can be tempted, we can still have that pressure to not want to associate ourselves with the name of Jesus. Maybe you walk into the break room at work and people are making fun of the Lord Jesus and his followers. Do you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus? Or do you stay quiet and just want to blend in with the rest of the crowd?
Maybe someone says to you, I remember this did happen to me one day, um, you don't seriously believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, do you? As if you're thinking it's very backwards. Now, this is really nothing compared to what some other people in the world face. A lot of people in the world out there are facing much heavier persecution. Now, just as I was preparing for this message, I looked up an account of a man um, on a website called The Voice of the Martyrs, which is a website that keeps track of a lot of persecution out there in the world towards believers. And I'll just give you one story here. There was a man named Bassam who got saved in a Muslim country. And after he made it known that he was saved, um, he, didn't, he, ha- he did not have an easy time. His family attacked him, his car burned, but even after he had to face a judge, this is what he said. He said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. This man held fast to Jesus' name. What does it mean to not deny my faith? You stand by what Jesus and his apostles taught. If you're one who does not deny the faith, you're a person who stands by the truth of biblical doctrine. These days, people look at you strange if you say that you believe everything the Bible says. Just to give an example of a person who's pressured not to, pressured about denying their faith. There's a man I know, he was uh, interviewed for a position at a university. Now, but during the interview, though, he was treated with hostility by someone. And the person who was one of the people doing the interview said, I will not recommend that you be hired unless you take that Christian literature out of your office and agree not to speak about your faith. The fact is, the truths in the Word of God are offensive to a lot of the unsaved world. People take offense to what God considers sin. I mean, I know I used to. When I was an unsaved person, uh, when someone told me that I was a sinner who needed to repent of, their, my, of my sin, I was furious. I wanted to punch that guy in the face. So the Lord actually begins by commending the church of Pergamos because they had been doing some things well. They had held fast to Jesus' name. They had not denied the faith. And they did this in a spiritually hostile environment. Not only was Pergamos a city full of idolatry, but believers were persecuted. And we see in verse 13 that even one member of the church, Antipas, was martyred. He was killed because of his faith in the Lord Jesus. So it's to the credit of the church that even in these tough times when Antipas was killed, the church of Pergamos held fast to Jesus' name. But then there were some problems. I'm just going to reread verses 14 and 15 in Revelation 2. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. 
Now, there were some problems. There were some in the church who were holding some evil doctrine. The first mentioned is the doctrine of Balaam. Now, to understand this passage, we need to look back at the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. Who, who, were, who was Balaam here? Who was Balak? So Balak was a king of Moab in the days of Moses. Now, Moab was a country that was very hostile to Israel for hundreds of years. It was continually an enemy of the nation of Israel. And the count of these two men begins in Numbers chapters 22 to 25, if you want to look it up later. I don't, we don't have time to look over all those chapters, so I'm just going to summarize uh, what happened with Balaam and Balak. So the children of Israel, they had just left Egypt. They were on their way to the promised land. The Lord had given, and we all know the story, the Lord given had delivered the children of Israel out of the hands of Egypt, which was the mightiest nation on the earth at the time. But along the way, um, Israel also had victories over other kings. There were two kings, the Amorites, that were giants that were defeated by Israel. So when um, Balak, the king of Moab, saw this, he began to freak out. He thought, wait a second, is Moab next on the list? Will will Moab be um, defeated for Israel? So he goes to this man named Balaam for help. He asks Balaam to curse Israel for him. Now, Balaam, you could say, he was a prophet. God did speak to him, but he was something like a prophet for hire. God was, had made it clear to Balaam that he did not want Balaam cursing Israel, but Balaam really wanted to go with Balak because Balak was offering him a big paycheck. Now, the Lord eventually did allow Balaam to meet Balak, the king of Moab, but he told Balaam that he could only say what the Lord wanted him to say. And what happens next is almost a kind of humorous situation. Balaam, this weird prophet, is trying to curse Israel, but then he ends up blessing Israel four times. But that's not the end of the story. So after Balaam found that he could not curse Israel, since God would not allow this, he thought of some other scheme where he could try to hurt Israel. And this is what it refers to in Revelation chapter 2, where it says Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. So what is the doctrine of Balaam? Now, by this time that Revelation has been written, Balaam has been dead for hundreds of years, and there are no books of Balaam. But we can um, infer from his actions what his doctrine is and what is being warned about here. So in Numbers uh, chapter 25, it says that the children of Israel began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Now, in Numbers 25, Balaam's name is not actually mentioned, but we know this was his idea. 
because later on in the book of Numbers, towards the end of the book, it's mentioned that Midianite women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord. So the doctrine of Balaam then was that the believer should intermarry with the unsaved and compromise in worshiping idols. So we see in Pergamos, there were people in the church who were actually, actually participating in worship of idols and engaging in sexual immorality. And these people within the church who were in, engaging in these practices, they weren't condemned, they weren't put out of fellowship, they were just accepted. They were teaching basically, it's okay to worship the idols, to worship idols, it's okay to commit sexual immorality. Now, why did this happen in Pergamos? With how prevalent idolatry was in Pergamos, probably a lot of people have been saved out of a background of idolatry. So why were they going back to something from their unsaved lives? Well, maybe this was something along their lines of thinking. Maybe they were thinking, well, wouldn't life be a little easier if we were more conformed to life in Pergamos? I mean, to a, a believer who is going through some tough times, well, it might seem there were some benefits to worshiping idols. Maybe the persecution of the, uh, the church was experiencing was starting to get to them. Partaking in some of the feasts that, that dedicated to idols would, them, would have made them fit in a little more with Pergamos society. Would have made them stand out less. Perhaps they would be less of a target of persecution. There was a temptation to compromise. So looking at verse 14 again, what does the Lord have against a believer eating things sacrificed to idols? I'll just give a little background on this. I'll just read another few verses from 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 18-21, if you want to look on later. So the Apostle Paul wrote, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So with a believer eating things sacrificed to idols, it's not just a believer eating any odd piece of food. Now, it's not like the food that was sacrificed to idols gains any strange properties or it's altered in any way by um, being in the idol's temple. It's just food. But think about the breaking of bread that we just had in the past hour. 
Now, nothing weird or mystical happens to the bread and the grape juice as we partake in the breaking of bread. It's still just bread and grape juice. But if I'm a believer who ate the bread and drank the grape juice today, what does it show about my relationship with the Lord Jesus? When I partake in the breaking of bread, it shows that I have fellowship with him, as those verses mentioned in 1 Corinthians. It shows that I have a relationship with him where I acknowledge him as my Lord and Savior. I have a bond with him. So what happens if I was a believer in Pergamos and I partake in a feast to an idol? Say I'm at a feast where I'm there's meat sacrificed to a god like Zeus. Am I now having fellowship with Zeus? Am I acknowledging Zeus as a god by eating at a meal dedicated to him? And actually, I am. In the Old Testament, when I was reading from the book of Numbers, it says that when the Israelites ate and bowed down to the gods of Moab, they were, and this is the word, they were joined to Baal Peor. They were joined to a false god. So by eating things sacrificed to idols, some, people, some believers in Pergamos were joining themselves to false gods of the Roman Empire. And along with idol worship, a lot of times went sexual immorality. Just to give an example, in Pergamos there was a temple devoted to a god named Dionysus. He was at one time the chief god of the city. He's god of wine. And a lot of times in the worship of this god, there was drinking of alcohol and sexually immoral practices. And partaking in food offered to idols, it would have been very tempting in a city like Pergamos because it was everywhere. There are so many idol temples. The food may have smelled good or looked good coming from these temples. And some of these temples were, were actually set up like restaurants. There were actual eating areas or banqueting halls. There were many festivals and feasts dedicated to different gods. And maybe it would have looked like the people were having a good time at these. Now, it wasn't just a doctrine of Balaam some people were holding in the church. Some people were holding the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, as is mentioned in uh, verse 14, uh, verse 15. So uh, who are these Nicolaitans? Now, they were just mentioned a couple weeks ago when um, we were looking at the letters to the church in Ephesus. Now, it's not known for sure what their doctrine was. Don mentioned a couple weeks ago it may have had something to do with like a group spreading the false doctrine that a, group should, that a church should be ruled by one person, something, something like the pastoral system we see in a lot of churches today, where one person leads a church. Or they may have been a group that was just advocating uh, tolerance for sins like sexual immorality. And there does seem to be a connection between the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of these Nicolaitans. 
Because after speaking about the doctor Balaam, the Lord says, thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, as if the doctrine of the Nicolaitans naturally followed that of those who held the doctrine of Balaam. Now, whatever the word, in a way the details don't matter, they were a group whose deeds the Lord hated. But at Pergamos, we have this awful situation. Some people in this church were not rejecting this doctrine at all. They were embracing it. They were saying, we like this doctrine. Now, how can a believer love something the Lord hates? If the Lord hates something, I need to have the same attitude of hatred towards it also. So with these false doctrines being held in the church, Jesus commands the church to repent. There should be no compromise here. These people teaching these doctrines should have no place in the church. Now, at our own church in 2023, Calvary Bible Chapel, we have had people come in with some false doctrine. And thankfully, I'm thankful for the elders who have dealt with these people and made them leave. For the believers in Pergamos in John's day, if they really had a change of heart and repented, they would have no tolerance for these people holding the false doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. They would have made them leave the church. If they did not, the Lord says that he will come against them with the sword of his mouth. Well, the Lord has an encouragement to the believer who hears what the Spirit says and overcomes by not tolerating the wicked doctrines that are mentioned here. Let's just read verse 17 again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now what is this hidden manna? Well, this promise of spiritual food would have been especially meaningful to a believer in Pergamos who may have been tempted day in, day out by unholy food offered to idols. Because maybe the thought had run through a believer's mind in Pergamos as he looked at the idol feast. He may have thought, am I missing out on something here? But the Lord promises the believer in Pergamos something much more tasty, this hidden manna. Well, just to review, what's, what's manna? So back in the days of Moses again, manna was a special way in which God fed Israel in their time in the wilderness. Because the, um, at the time when uh, the Israelites left Egypt, there were maybe about two million people. How do you feed two, two million people out in the middle of nowhere? So God made manna come down from heaven. And it was something like, it's mentioned being like coriander seed. And it, it tasted good. And Exodus said it was like wafers with honey. Like people during 
Jesus' day were hoping he would replicate that miracle so they could have a taste of it. The hidden manna here probably is not referring to physical manna. The Lord Jesus, during his time on earth, he already spent some time talking about how he was a true bread from heaven. And manna, as remarkable as it was, it was just a just food. It only had temporary benefits. It really only satisfied your stomach. I mean, the next day you'd be hungry again, you would need something else to eat. Hidden manna here speaks of spiritual food. And all those benefits that come with drawing near to the Lord and doing his will. And there are so many benefits to having close communion with the Lord. I'll just give you a couple examples. Is there any food that you know of that can give you peace which surpasses all understanding? Well, the Lord does say that that's something a believer can have if you draw close to him in prayer. In Isaiah chapter 40, the Lord has his promise. He says that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, I don't know of any physical food that can do that. Now, what's with this white stone and this new name that's placed on it, that's given to the person who overcomes? And to understand the white stone, we need a little historical context also. So there's a couple possibilities here. In this, like I mentioned, um, the city of Pergamos was one of the seats of a Roman Supreme Court. And in the Roman days, it wasn't just a matter of being pronounced guilty or not guilty. You were given a stone on your sentence. So if you were guilty, you received a black stone. But if you were innocent, if you were um, declared not guilty, you were given a white stone. And you bet someone in court would want a white stone. Something else also in Roman times, a white stone was also given to the victor in a competition. So if you competed in athletics and you were the winner, you got a white stone. So in this case, uh, the white stone during Roman times, it was a mark of approval, a mark of favor. And this would have been especially comforting to a believer in Pergamos, who may have been going through persecution. Because, like I said, some of the believers in Pergamos, they may have been feeling discouraged from what they were going through. But here is a reminder that however badly they might be treated by the unsaved world, they had a loving Lord and Savior who accepted them and approved of them. And why is there a new name on this stone? I mean, what's, what, what's wrong with my current name? I like it. Why would the Lord give me a new one? Now, this part wasn't uh, part of Roman custom, but the Lord's giving a very personal touch to the approval and acceptance of the, of the believer who overcomes. 
Now, some commentators think this might refer to, to, to the Lord's individual rewards to the believer in heaven. And this is possible because we see in other times God has changed other people's names. God changed Abraham to Abraham. He changed Simon to Cephas as, they were, as God was starting a new chapter in their lives. So how does this passage apply to me today in 2023? Because it might seem like, well, the doctrine of Balaam is not such a threat in the 21st century. I mean, I don't live in a city full of idolatry like Pergamos. I'm, I may not be personally tempted by sexual immorality. But the truth is, this world is still filled with plenty of idols that are a threat to believers. Now, idols may not be statues. They may not be obvious, like in the days of Pergamos, with gods like Zeus or Dionysus, who had temples and altars. But think about it this way. An idol is really anything that takes the place of God in your life. Is there something or someone in my life that's filling all my thoughts, that's taking up all my time and energy? Something or someone that is not God? Is there someone or something in my life that I am looking to give me joy and fulfillment and satisfaction that is not God? Because whatever or whoever that is, that is an idol in my life. And there are so many things of the world that could be idols. Money can be an idol. Career can be an idol. Popularity could be an idol. Pornography and drugs can be idols. Now, some things that might seem harmless can be idols. Now, there's nothing wrong with, say, taking a break after your work day, but hobbies can be an idol. They can consume us, our time and energy after work. I've seen people idolize their car, idolize their sports, idolize their comic book collection. Often, in the past, video games were an idol of mine. Now, sometimes when I walk into a patient's home and I see what hobby has taken over their life and over their house, I feel like I'm walking into a shrine or a temple of some kind. Or, or with all the trophies or giant posters on the wall, I feel like I literally am seeing a bunch of idols in a person's house. Now, there's nothing wrong with having relationships in your life, but people can be an idol. Now, I can remember as an unsaved person, as a college student, I really had my heart set on a particular girl that I wanted to hook up with, and I'll freely admit, she was an idol in my life. Family can be an idol. I can be so focused on making my wife happy, on making my kids happy, that the Lord takes second place. 
If I really just want something bad, some, I want something so bad that I don't have, if I covet something, that's actually an idol. Now, Paul, the apostle says it straight out in the book of Colossians. He says, covetousness is idolatry. In Ephesians, Paul calls a covetous man an idolater. These days, with how much people stare at their smartphones, it seems like there's a lot of portable idols around. And there's a temptation to compromise in regards to idolatry in our lives. That person might think, well, can't I serve God and try and be as wealthy as possible? Can't I serve God and try and maximize my career? Can't I be a believer and uh, put all I can to having my hobbies and collecting the things I like? But the fact is, if I have set my heart on the things of the world, I'm joining myself to the world, just like the Israelites join themselves to the false god of Baal. It's said in the book of James that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And in fact, James, he likes it to, he, he makes an analogy to friendship with the world being like sexual immorality. He calls people who have loved the things of the world adulterers and adulteresses. Maybe I'm tempted to just go with the flow in regards to the things of the world. Now, some of the believers in Pergamos, it looked like they had stopped resisting the culture of idol worship and sexual immorality and were just accepting it. Now, we live in a world, too, where there's just this increase sexual immorality and acceptance of it. And there's no need to go into much detail. Things like premarital sex have become the normal almost. Things like homosexuality are no longer considered sins in some churches. There's a lot of churches that have compromised in regards to what is considered sin. But am I just going to go with the flow and tolerate this kind of doctrine in my life, in my family's life? Or am I willing to take the Lord's attitude in regard to these things? What happens when believers compromise in regards to what's in the Word of God? Now, God, he's called us to be separate. He says to be holy, for I, I am holy. But if I compromise in regards to what the Lord says, something really sad happens. The believer just starts to blend in with the rest of the world. Take the believer who compromises in regards to idolatry. Perhaps career has become this person's focus. He begins to put so much time and energy into his job that soon he becomes less and less present on Sunday mornings. And soon no one even thinks of him as a churchgoer, let alone as a follower of Jesus. Or perhaps a believer has compromised in sexual immorality. It's fairly common to have couples living together now before marriage these days. A believer might think, well, everyone else is doing it. Why not me? 
But if you compromise yourself this way, you're suddenly in no position to talk to anyone about their own sin. You can't share the gospel with anyone because people will see you as a hypocrite. Once a believer just kind of blends in with the rest of the world, they've lost their ability to be a witness to the unsaved world. They've lost their ability to shine as a light in a dark world. So how do I guard myself from spiritual compromise and idolatry? As I actually write in this passage, with the rewards that the Lord mentions in verse 17. We focus on what the Lord has for me, what he says he will give to him who overcomes. Because there is a great reward to the believer who overcomes. You know, whatever things are in the world, whatever things the idols of this world might seem to offer, it really doesn't compare to what the Lord offers. Yes, you might get some passing satisfaction and pleasure of getting the latest gadget or making a big new career or whatever other thing or person you might be tempted to idolize, but it's, it's a passing pleasure at best. I want the hidden manna, the blessings that come with having close communion with the Lord. And the, the approval of the world and social conformity shouldn't matter to me. Okay, maybe I get unfriended on Facebook or I get a thumbs down on my YouTube video. But the Lord's acceptance and approval of me, that should be what should matter to me. He's the most important person after all in the universe. He's God and creator. He's my Lord and Savior. His opinion, his opinion should matter to me the most. I want that white stone, that seal of his, that symbol of his approval. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word again. Thank you for the lessons we can learn from it. And we do pray as we go out this week, we do pray that you would protect us from the things the world protects from idols and help us cling to what you hold dear and seek your approval. We pray this in Jesus' name.